All right. If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're finally going to finish chapter 1. And I've been excited about this message because basically when I started this book, this message was on my mind, this, this section of Scripture. We're going to be in verse 27. And Lord willing, we will get through verse 4 of chapter 2. But there's at least a few of these verses that I... The reason this has excited me, the reason this was on my mind is because it's amazing. There are a few things that you can... Just a few little biblical principles. I say little. They're actually huge. But they're short. That would straighten out so many problems that we have today. And we're going to see one of those today, and so that's what, uh, that's what we're going to take a look at. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again for a, 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 just a wonderful day. We thank you for your word. I thank you for Paul and what he taught this morning. And God, I just pray that you would help us to understand that and help us to learn it to where we can explain it to others so that they, we would represent you correctly when we're teaching, when we're talking in our conversations, Lord. And that people would have more of a desire to know you. They would go deeper into your word to know you better. Um, Lord, that we would be able to help give that desire to them. And as I preach this today, that that would be a result. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would guide me. that That you would speak your message through me. And that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so quick review. This is Paul writing to the church at Philippi, and he's in prison. He's in a, it's not a terrible situation. He gets in a worse situation later. He's in, he's under house arrest, but he's able to share the gospel with many people. Um, This is in Rome that he's imprisoned, and he has been able to share the gospel with many people. And And they, in part of the first chapter, we learned that that's part of his praise in his um, persecution that he's undergoing, that he's got to share the gospel even with the palace guard. Like, and I'm not talking about one guard. We're talking about the palace guard of Caesar, the, all of his army, so to speak, that guards the palace. He's been able to share the gospel with them. So it's really pretty neat um, what God is doing there. The last sermon was mostly centered on magnifying Christ in his work. And it, I talked about the Christian, why it is for the Christian to live or die doesn't ultimately matter. Because either way, we will magnify Jesus. Right? That was the message. If we die, then we will magnify Christ because we're not afraid of what's on the other side. And if we live... We will magnify Christ because he will be working through us in this life. And that's when Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. If we will, uh, if, um, so, so that kind of brings us to where we are here in verse 27. Uh, let's just get into it. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What a huge statement that is. What a loaded statement that is, right? And if you read your Bible, this does not sound unfamiliar to you because very similar language is used in a lot of places. A lot of places walk worthy of your calling, right? Let your conduct be worthy. The gospel of Christ, so it, we must know this, and I think everybody here does, but I don't want to fail to give at least a short description of what the gospel is. We would never want somebody that attends Sovereign Grace Bible Church to not be able to answer the question, what is the gospel? It's a, it's a way that when I'm witnessing to people, I ask that a lot of times. Oh, you're a Christian, so what is the gospel? And then the crickets, all of a sudden, that's all you can hear, right? Because people don't understand the gospel. And so we would never want to be guilty of that here. So the extremely shortened version is it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we know it's much more than that. I mean, you've got to unpack that. But it is the fact that the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, came down to earth and died in our place. That's the gospel. And more than that, he received the wrath of God on our behalf. It was more than the physical death, right? We must understand that. When Jesus died on the cross, he received the physical death, which he did not deserve. But he also received the punishment of the wrath of God, which he did not deserve. For who? For us. For his people. Right? And then he was buried was resurrected, and he now sits at the right hand of God. He was the perfect sacrifice and substitute. That is, and I hope we never get tired of hearing that, and I hope we never undermine the greatness, the vastness, the awesomeness of that. And now we are called to live worthy of that. How? How can we live worthy of that? Well, I'm going to give you some practical things to start with as Christians. And then we're going to talk about the rest of the verse. Um, Here's the reality. We have all, we've all um, had issues of bringing shame on the name of Christ at some point. I'm guessing. I have. I know... Others probably have. We're all guilty of saying, yes, we're a Christian, and then doing something that is not Christ-like. And if we will help, if it will help us to not do that, if we will think about, I am Christ's ambassador. I'm his representative. So we've all had this problem, but the point for a Christian is to repent when we do that. And so, but, so none of us are perfect, however, there should be a pattern in our lives that is striving for, perfect, for, for perfection, right? We should be striving to not misrepresent Christ anymore. So to get really plain, it's like this. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, act like a Christian, there's something that's really been bothering me here lately, and I've seen it with several different people. 
um, in different areas, it's, it seems to be extremely prevalent. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Where do you go to church? Oh, I don't really go to church. Okay, this used to be pretty simple. This used to be pretty common knowledge that Christians go to church. Okay? So there's a start, which I, you guys are here, so I'm not, you know, doesn't do any good for me to tell you this, but maybe you can tell your friends. Maybe, you, I mean, probably everybody in here knows somebody that claims to be a Christian that doesn't, not only does not go consistently, doesn't go at all. You know, we used to say Easter and Christmas. Well, man, Christmas is way too busy nowadays. Maybe Easter, right? No. So just some of the basic tenets of Christianity need to return, I think, to our culture. But if you're going to call yourself a Christian, act like a Christian. Another thing that we have an extreme hard time doing, and I am guilty of this one, is admitting when we're wrong. And I think our theology helps us to do this. If you were here this morning, you heard a great outline of our basic, some of our basic points. Total depravity was one of them. And when you understand that we are still, even though we've been saved, even though the Holy Spirit lives in us and is guiding us and teaching us and directing us, we are still in this unredeemed body. And we know that the heart is desperately wicked and we still have a tendency for our heart to go Towards sin, apart from the Holy Spirit, we would be completely back in sin. But when you understand that, you gain a great understanding that it's easy for me to be wrong, act wrong, or make a bad decision. And so therefore, as now, listen, this one's a hard one. Because it's called pride that we're fighting against. But as Christians... We need to be fully aware of the fact that we make mistakes a lot. And we have to be able to admit that. And when that realization realization comes, let it come quick, Lord, and repent quickly. It's a mark of a Christian. I could make a long list of things when it comes to living according to our calling But another one that I want to mention is just living upright and honest. If we are to be ambassadors for Christ, which we are, if you're a Christian, you are called to be an ambassador for Christ. In some way, you are reaching out to people on behalf of Christ. You are his representatives on this earth. This is not our home. We are like missionaries in a foreign land. The world is our foreign land. And if we're going to do that, how will anyone listen to us about Christ if we've done them wrong in a business deal? Or we've destroyed their property? Or our marriage is terrible? Or we're terrible at our job? We're lazy? Or we don't strive to do good work? Or we can't seem to keep a job. Are they going to listen to me when I'm proclaiming Christ to them, when I'm not even meeting the standards that their unbelieving friends meet? Or I'm not even meeting the standard that they're meeting as an unbeliever? Absolutely not. They're not going to listen to me. And why would they? 
We are called to live above that. We are called to be better. Paul was talking this morning. He makes a great point. He is a better father because he's a Christian. And I can attest to that in my life. I am absolutely a better father because I'm a Christian. I absolutely love my wife better than I would have had I not been saved. I love my children more because I'm a Christian. Why? Because that's Christ working in me. And guess what? I'm also better at my job because I'm a Christian. And I should be striving to be even better at it because when people see me, I'm representing Christ in my workplace, in my marriage, in my household. We have to remember that. It is not just about our reputation. It is not just about the reputation of sovereign grace. It is about the reputation of Christ. You are called to represent Him. And there's nothing more important than being a good representative. In all aspects of our life, we're called to walk worthy. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Do I live as carelessly and worldly as unbelievers while professing to be a follower of Jesus? If so, I'm exposing Christianity to ridicule and leading people to speak evil of the holy name by which I'm called. It's absolutely true. So those are just some practical things. But now we want to look at the second part of verse 27. He says that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now we get some action words. How do we walk worthy of the gospel? He says, stand fast in the spirit. On one hand, this means you can't do it. It's going to take the Holy Spirit's power to make you um, actually walk worthy, which we, I think we all understand that. The Holy Spirit's living, working in us. It's by His power that we overcome sin. It's by His power that we are good representatives of Christ. But he says, stand fast in that. One very practical way to stand fast in the Spirit is to be able to recognize when he speaks. To be able to recognize when he leads. To be able to know when God says something. How can you do that? Read and study the Word of God. And pray. And that way you can know when something is not of God by knowing what God actually said. And then that way we can know if our actions are actually walking worthy of Christ. In order to walk worthy, we would have to know what that would look like, right? How do we know what that would look like other than the Scriptures? And then he says, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, who is he talking about striving with here? It's fellow believers. It's the church. The specific church here that Paul is writing to is the church at Philippi. He's saying, you guys, you guys need to come together. Strive together for the sake of the gospel. And he can write that to us just as well. It's coming directly to us as a local body of believers. We need to strive together for the sake of the gospel. It's giving, this, it's giving them and us a call to action. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, just a couple, couple pages back. 
verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So there's some more very practical lowliness and gentleness. Humility, gentleness, care for one another. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what we're called to do as Christians. And there's an interesting thing here about the word strive. When he says striving together for the faith of the gospel. The word strive there is from the word son of Thelo. Athleo, sorry. Um, you recognize the athleo there. That's actually where we get the word athlete. So it signifies competition as an athlete would. Now, this is not about competing with one another. It's, it's about, it has, it has in it the effort and discipline, endurance of athletic endeavor. If you've ever been an athlete, you understand discipline and consistency is necessary to attain the goal. Athletics is about setting your mind on a goal and striving and doing everything necessary to get to that goal. Fixing your eyes on the goal. John Piper said this, fix your eyes on the goal of spreading the faith of the gospel and then apply the effort and discipline and endurance of an athlete to reaching that goal. So to walk worthy is to strive together for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way way a team would come together with a common goal. And that's important that as a church, we understand the common goal is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see a lot of problems within congregations when they lose sight of that common goal. When all of a sudden the common goal becomes programs. The common goal becomes feeding the community. The common goal becomes we're going to have this program and get people off of drugs. Or the common goal becomes we're going to, we're going to have whatever it is, right? Not that those things are bad. We've said this many times. You feel like you want to feed the poor. Or even this. I think Paul mentioned this the other day. Maybe, maybe in a lot of places the common goal has become to abolish abortion. Now listen, just to make this clear, I am 100% abolishing abortion. But that is not the goal that was given to us in scriptures. The goal is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And through that gospel will come the abolition of abortion. Through that gospel will come feeding the poor. Through that gospel will become people getting off of drugs and freeing from all other sins. If it doesn't come through the gospel, it won't last. That's why it's the common goal. You will be a better abolitionist if the gospel is first in your life. The same way I will be a better father if the gospel is first in my life. And we will be better at everything we do if we maintain this common goal and that comes first. That's what it's talking about. Now look at verse 28. And I'm going to tie back to verse 27 in, in a little bit. So 
In verse 28, he says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Now, remember, there was some fear within the, the Philippians about what was going to happen with Paul. They were extremely concerned about his well-being. They were concerned about if Paul gets killed in prison, the gospel may not continue. What's going to happen? Who's going to carry this on? And this whole book is writing to encourage them that no matter what happens to me, the gospel will continue. Strive for it. The Holy Spirit will take it. And that's when you remember he said, being confident of this very thing, he that begun a good work in you will finish it, will complete it. That's what he's talking about. It doesn't rest with Paul. It doesn't rest with any of us in here. It rests with God working in you. But there's some fear there. And his answer was, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of your adversaries. Their actions are further proof that the Bible is true. Isn't that amazing? The more they try to stop us, the more they try to disprove the Bible, the more they're actually proving it. Let a man try to write a book that will do that. can't be done. It's divine. It's inspired. It's of God. Their actions are showing us where they are headed and who they work for. But also their actions are proof They're proving, they're helping us to show our election is sure. And at the end of that verse, it says, and that from God. The whole of this is from God. Their perdition, that means their punishment, their eternal punishment, your salvation, your overcoming fear. The adversaries are even by divine permission. These adversaries can't come to you unless God permits it. Verse 29, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. There's a lot in here. I don't want, I don't want to skip this. I don't want to leave this out because I think there's some, there's some important points here that we need to be reminded of. Two things have been granted on behalf of Christ here. The first is to believe in him is the first. Hold on, let me back up. Let me read the verse again. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. For you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. That means that at his will, these two things have happened. The first is to believe in him. Whose will, according to that verse, whose will was this granted on? It was Christ's. It was not your will. It was Christ's will that you believed in him. Yours, now here's the thing. This is where it gets confusing because, and and when we try to explain this to people that don't fully understand this doctrine, they get confused because in your experience, you very much believed on him. And nobody's denying that. You did. You made a profession of faith. You had a heart change. You believed in Christ. What we're saying is, and what Paul is saying here, what the Holy Spirit is saying here is, 
It was Christ's will first. Your will came after his. He set his affection on you, believer, first. And then as a result, you loved him. We love him because he first loved us. The second thing here, according to his will, for his sake, is to suffer. We will suffer for his sake. This, of course is the opposite of what many will hear taught today. This is the opposite of what the Word of Faith movement teaches. It's the opposite of what many churches and many Christian friends I have will say. Somehow they believe that blessings come. And listen, blessings do come. Amazing blessings within Christianity come. But they're not what people want to say they are. They're not the earthly possessions that come. Persecution comes. Now, this does not mean that you won't receive earthly blessings. God allows us to have good things at at times. He allows us to go through good times. He allows us to be um, blessed even financially so that you can bless others. He allows us to be blessed with earthly things so that you can bless others. But that's not what this is talking about. This is saying that we will suffer for his sake. And who better understood this than Paul, who is in prison at the time? He's suffering for his sake. He knows at some point he's going to face death. It's still a ways away at this point, but he knows that that is a very likely possibility. The more law, the longer time goes, the more laws they could create against Christianity. But he's saying it's for his sake. But is, this is precisely what the Bible teaches. If you turn to Second Timothy. Second Timothy chapter three. Look at verse eleven. Actually, let's start at verse ten. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, what's happened to me at Antioch, and I okay. Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why? Darkness hates light. It's really pretty much that simple. Now, the persecution will look different for every man and every woman. And we have not received extreme persecution in this country yet, but we're seeing more and more of it. And some people have experienced more extreme than others, but it's coming. And we need to be prepared for that. But if you look back at 29 there, is it worth it? Because who who is the persecution for? 
It's for Christ's sake. And yes, he's worthy. He's worthy. Look at verse 30. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Here Paul is he's talking about two different occurrences um, when Paul was was persecuted for the sake of the gospel. The first one was actually, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16. This is when the Philippian church was established. This is when Paul first went into Philippi and was preaching. And this, the, the woman was following them around, praising their name. These are men of God. And he, she was possessed by a demon. And he turned around and cast the demon out of her. And there were people that made money from her demonic abilities and they wound up dragging Paul and Silas into the marketplace, scourged them, beat them, threw them in the prison. That was the first persecution. So these Philippians that he's writing to, many of them would have been eyewitnesses of that account. And many others would have heard directly from an eyewitness. So he's saying, this is what, you're, this is what I'm talking about. The second one he's talking about, you've been hearing about is what they're now hearing about Paul in Rome. So it's just two descriptions of what's going on there. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, he continues on with a therefore. And remember, hermeneutic rules, studying the Bible, you don't start... It amazes me how they always seem to start a chapter with therefore. It's really not necessarily the best chapter break because it's not that is directly talking about everything else he's been saying. When you see the therefore, it means it's like a, it's like a because of this, right? Because of everything he has just said, listen to this. Um, because of everything he's just said in the first chapter. So what were those things? Because Christ is worthy to be magnified. Because the gospel is so great and mighty and divine. Because for us as Christians, death has no sting. The grave has no victory. Because God is finishing the work he started in you. Because of all of that, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Verse 1, therefore, it is if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and mercy, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Because of all of this other stuff, because Christ is so great and deserves to be magnified, be of one accord. Be like-minded. Come together. Strive for the gospel. That's what he's saying here. What is that one accord? What is that one mind? It's Jesus. It's the Christ. It's the Messiah. That's it. Everything else falls into place when you have him in the right place. When, when I was first saved, and I was struggling a lot on different types of churches, I was leaving the church that I had grown up in, and I was struggling a lot with Leaving it, basically, even though that I saw a lot of error being taught there, but it was all I had ever known. Um, I heard a statement, which was one of the most eye-opening statements I think I've ever heard, or at least for me personally. 
And it was Ronnie Qualls talking to a guy, and he asked him, well, what what does your church believe? And the answer was simply this. We preach Christ and Him crucified. And it was almost like a sledgehammer hitting me between the eyes. Like, it was so simple yet so profound. Because I realized for most of my life I had been missing Christ. We had all kinds of doctrines within the church. We had all kinds of striving in different directions. What we didn't have was a centerpiece, center focus, the entire church coming together for Christ and Him crucified. And when I heard that, I thought, i got to learn more about this. Christ and Him crucified. And then you realize that all other doctrines come from that. All other theology has got to come from that. If it doesn't, it is worthless. That is the one accord we are called to be in. How do we, how do we achieve this one accord? How do we come together like this? This is, this is all easy to say. It's easy to preach. It's hard to do. And I'm gonna I'm gonna stop just for a second and say this: How thankful I am to be a part of a body of believers that I truly believe strives for this. People come from out of town. Godwin and John Hall were here the other day, and they could not compliment us enough on the fellowship that they witnessed. And that is God working in each of our lives, giving us a desire to talk to one another, to visit, to spend time together. And it's a love for the Word of God that I see in this congregation that I am so thankful for because I know it's a blessing of God. And I give, I I mean, obviously He gets the full credit for that, but I want to thank you. I want to thank you all for having that mind. And for striving for these things that I'm talking about. But yet we want to strive more. And we don't want to forget. And we don't want to get too complacent. That's why Paul's writing this. Because I think Philippi was a church like this. I think Philippi was a solid church. And he's writing to encourage them. And that's what I want to do is encourage you to keep it up. Continue it. Strive for the word of God. And a big part of that comes from verse 3. And this is the verse I was talking about. So many church problems, so many of our country's problems, so many of your problems in work would be avoided if people would follow this verse right here. It says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. What a different world we would live in if a few more people would follow that verse, huh? Just stop and think about some of the problems you've had with people. And how many of those problems come out of selfishness? Maybe it's your selfishness, or maybe it's their selfishness, or my experience, it's a lot of times both. I wonder how many church splits 
would have been avoided if both sides would have heeded to that verse right there. I wonder how many marriages would have been saved. I I wonder how much stronger the voice of Christianity would be in this lost and dying world if we as Christians would just heed to that verse right there. And this does not mean that we compromise truth for unity. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about compromising truth. That's not usually what the true fights are about, is it not? Very few of the church splits actually occur over good, solid doctrine. And two men disagreeing or two sides disagreeing. It's usually a lot more pettiness that leads into something else and start nitpicking doctrine. That's how they usually happen. Because of selfishness and pride. But we don't compromise truth for unity, but what it does mean is that we consider other points of view from our brothers and sisters and esteem their well-being as more important than our own. Am I the only one that's ever been wrong about the Bible and what I believed? Am I the only one that's ever had his theology mixed up? (laughs) Me and Paul. (laughs) Every one of us in here has been wrong. And, we, and I fully realized I could, I could make a mistake again. And so I, that's why you must understand and hear. I've, I've listened to arguments before, and I've read them on Facebook, about people arguing about things. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, they are not understanding each other at all. It becomes more about the argument than it does about the topic, because I actually, they're actually agreeing. Y'all ever seen that? Like, Facebook debate goes on and these people are agreeing, but they're yelling at each other while they're doing it? Like, why? Because you're not esteeming the other person as higher than yourself. It means we have a great realization of the amazing grace that has been given to us, and we realize we should extend the same grace to our brothers and sisters in all cases. And then we should take it outside the church and esteem and and extend the same grace to non-believers. There shouldn't be a big surprise when non-believers act like non-believers. When they act like sinners, that's because they're sinners, right? And we have to remember, but for the grace of God, there go I, Right? And we need to extend them grace. We need to show them grace. We need to put their needs above ours. In a word, it, it, it's humility. It's simply taking a step back from our own plans, our own desires, our own wants, our own needs, and allowing somebody else that privilege. Andrew Murray said this, In his great book about humility, he said, Humility is not so much a grace or virtue along with others. It is the root of all because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all. If we will remember our position when we stand before an almighty God and how lowly we are, it's not that hard to step back. And the other thing in that is, no matter how much you put somebody else in front of you, You're still a son or a daughter of the king. How much more 
acclimate do you need? How much more boastful does it get? That's all you need. And when you realize and remember that, it is not so hard to esteem others as better than yourself. In verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, when you tie that back, go back to verse 27, chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A very practical way to let our conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ is to put our brothers and sisters in front of us. To put their needs in front of ours. To esteem them as better than ourselves. If you're a parent, we have lots of parents in here. Some of you have very small children. Some of you have older ones. But I don't think it matters the age. As soon as they're big enough to show this, one of the best things your children can do for you is to get along with each other. Am I right about that? There is nothing better than when I hear my girls completely apart from me back in their room just having a blast. And there's nothing better than when I see them come together and work and help each other. And I've seen other parents. I've talked to a lot of parents. I have a lot of students that are almost my own. I talk to their parents, and the testimony is always the same. There is nothing more rewarding for a parent than seeing your kids get along, work together, strive for a common goal. And here we are as Christians with the God who's done so much for us, who gave his own life in our place, who received the wrath that we deserve, that took it all, and we have this opportunity that we can please him the same way. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another the way I have loved you. This, and th- Listen, this is pleasing to God, but this is also a very extremely powerful witness to that lost world that's out there. You think they don't notice? You think the heathen doesn't notice how the church treats each other? Absolutely they do. I've been amazed as a teacher at times in a small community. It's a very small, tight-knit community at Stratford. And I've been amazed at bickering that I see that I wind up somehow in in the middle of at times. And then I find out these people go to the same church. How poor of a witness is that for Christ? How poor of a witness is that for the church that you're fighting this out outside and you can't even work this out like brothers and sisters? The heathen notices how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. The heathen notices how we treat our spouses. You want to be a powerful witness for Christ? Take care of your marriage. Love your wife 
Love your husband. Esteem them as higher than yourselves. Like I said, how many marriages would have been saved if we just would have done that? How many fights with your spouse would have been avoided if you would have just said, you know what, this is not worth the fight. I will step back and I will do whatever. Right? And the, and the outside world notices that, especially today, the family. I don't care what they say. I don't care how far they take this weird perversion of whatever it is they're calling a family. When people see a solid family, they notice and they yearn for it. I promise you they do. Everybody yearns for it because it's part of God's design inside of us to have that. Why? Because that's his design. And we can pervert it and we can twist it and we can chop it up. We can do all kinds of things. And yet, somewhere deep inside, they yearn for it. And if you have it, that makes you a witness. It gives you something to point to and say, look what Christ has done in my life. So let us walk worthy of the gospel of Christ as we go and we serve our King by serving one another. Let's pray. Father, Lord, help me to make this a reality in my life. God, like I said, it preaches easy, but it's so hard, and I only can do it by your power, by your spirit. Help me to walk worthy. Help me to walk with purpose. Help me to strive with these, my fellow brothers and sisters, for the common goal of the gospel. Lord, I thank you for teaching us what you have and for bringing us this far. I just pray, Lord, that you would continue to lead us into the promised land, that you would continue to give us a desire to follow you in knowledge and wisdom, and that we would strive to be a light in this dark world. I thank you, Lord, for what we heard this morning, for the songs that we play. And I also thank you, Lord, as we recognize young people who are graduating God, that you would um, that you would help them to take these steps and walk worthy as they move on into new parts of their life and that their desire would always be to honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.